0: Today on Podcast by the Bay, current insurance commissioner of California and current candidate for attorney general of California, Dave Jones.
1: In the North Bay, we had something on the order of about 35,000 homes partially or completely destroyed. Within that 35,000, there's about 6,500 that were completely destroyed. A lot of my work over the last year has been getting insurers to help people uh, with regard to Uh, their recovery.
0: Discussing many of the local and state issues of California, including housing, transportation, health care, and what makes him stand out as a candidate for Attorney General of California.
1: There's some big policy differences between us. I'm I'm actively promoting criminal justice reform. Um, I uh, actually oppose the death penalty. He supports it. Um, I uh, am not uh, willing to take contributions from the insurance industry, big oil, uh, big tobacco, uh, the private bail industry that we talked about earlier. He's taking contributions from all of those places. I also refuse to politicize the office.
0: All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at Bay at gmail.com. And now, another podcast by the bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre
2: and this is Patrick.
0: And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We're excited to have you with us today. Thank you for downloading this episode. And thank you for spreading the word to all your friends and telling everybody about Podcasts by the Bay. We definitely appreciate that. And so today, we're going to continue our election coverage. And today, we actually have a very special guest. And this is our current insurance commissioner here in California, who's also running for Attorney General of California And that's going to be Dave Jones. And so, Patrick, you got to meet Dave Jones. You got to hear and speak with him and talk about the issues. So can you tell the listeners about Dave Jones and really what he's about for attorney general coming up?
2: Okay. um, I had an opportunity last Friday to interview Dave Jones in San Francisco um, at a nice old-fashioned hotel. And... um, Dave is currently the insurance commissioner for the state of California, um, and he has actually prosecuted over 5,000 people um, for fraud and insurance-related crimes. He's a graduate of uh, Harvard Law School and Kennedy School of Government. His wife is Kim Flores. They live in Sacramento. Uh, he started running for election the time he was in uh, high school, where he was student body president. He is from the state of Illinois. Um, I did spend some time interviewing him. Uh, Jones currently regulates the largest insurance market in the United States, which insurers collect some $289 billion in premiums year. He has saved consumers over $3 billion in premiums by regulating insurance rates and issued important consumer protection uh, things to protect people. He's in favor of single-payer insurance. Uh, Jones has been the leader in the Affordable Care Act, which insulates 5, more, 5 million more Californians to have the ability to have health insurance. Um, Jones uh, is married and has two, two uh, children. Um, I think when you hear the interview, he's very frank about uh, talking about the issues that are affecting. He is running for attorney general. That's the top cop for the state. Um, he's concerned about the uh, prison reform. He's concerned about the homeless people. He's concerned about health care. He's concerned about housing and transportation. They're all intertwined. Um, again, I had a wonderful opportunity to interview him in San Francisco on on Post, on Post Street. And uh, without further ado, I think you should listen to the, uh, Dave Jones. Um, I think he brings a wide variety of experience. Um, he was a- actually born um, just a little, uh, little bit after JFK was, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated. So he still has that passion of giving back. Um, he was very candid. Uh, he gave me 52 minutes of his time. And I'm sure the listeners are going en- en- to enjoy it. Andre, here's a highlight we should really pick up. He also represented low-income families and individuals as a legal aid lawyer um, for the Department of Justice, and he served under a specialist to former United States Attorney General Janet Reno. Um, he's been on city council. Uh, he's been on state assembly. Uh, he's he's a dedicated person. Uh, he's in for consumer protection, civil justice, and and he promotes legislation that take, takes... Uh, Takes the makes sure that the protection of the citizens is concerned, no matter what economic background.
0: Well, this sounds exciting, and one of the things that's interesting about this race coming up on June fifth is that we also have an incumbent, Xavier uh, Berzera, and um, actually, this is kind of interesting that you have another uh, a Democrat that's actually running uh, against uh, Xavier, the incumbent. So I think that's going to be very interesting to kind of see how this plays out. And I think this is a very close race. It's a close, uh, uh, you know, Canada, you know, election coming up. So I think this is going to be exciting. We're actually pleased here to hear about the issues, to talk about immigration, to talk about even, I, I don't know if you guys got a chance to really uh, talk about Trump and really how California really represents Uh, you know, against the the national stage as well, because I think that's a big kind of topic that's, I know, uh, the current Attorney General has been actually engaging a lot uh, with the Trump administration, as far as, uh, you know, the difference in uh, policy and the different, you know, uh, kind of going against the the national stage. So I think that's another dynamic of the Attorney General that actually is happening a lot here in California. So it's kind of a high profile position. It's something that's you know, in the public, there's going to be a lot of uh, in influence as far as, um, you know, getting involved. And so things like that. So I think this is great. So here are podcasts, by the way. I think we're excited. We're going to go ahead and present this. This is the candidate for attorney general of California, who is the current insurance commissioner, uh, commissioner and that's Dave Jones. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get to the interview and if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please reach out to us at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. You can reach us on Facebook, facebook.com podcastbythebay. Please follow us on Twitter at podcastbythebay. All right. So with that,
2: this is Andre. And this is Patrick.
0: And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome to Podcast by the Bay. We have the honor in today's Friday and we have the honor of interviewing Dave Jones. He's a current insurance commissioner for the state of California. He's a dedicated public servant. He's from uh, Orland Park, Illinois. I don't think too many of our viewers know where that is, but I want to welcome you to Podcast by the Bay and why don't you give a little background about yourself because we're hoping a lot of our viewers are going to have an opportunity to find out a little bit about you. You had a journey out here to California. How'd you get here to California?
1: I came to California as a result of falling in love with the California. And my wife, Kim Flores, uh, who was uh, raised uh, in Northern California, uh, she and I met uh, in graduate school back east, yeah, fell in love, uh, she introduced me to California, otherwise I'd still be uh, living outside of Chicago. Uh, we uh, settled here in 1988, uh, we're very blessed, we have two kids, and uh, I've been very fortunate to have had a chance to serve in various uh, public positions throughout my career as a city council member, a state assembly member, insurance commissioner now. Uh, Earlier, I worked as a legal aid lawyer representing farm workers and low-income families on their legal issues. So it's been a a real uh, blessing to get to uh, serve California in various capacities. And now, of course, I'm running to be attorney general.
2: Well, Dave, we appreciate that uh, you share a lot of the same values that Ellen Kukalakis is. That's running for lieutenant governor. Um, we're here at the Kensington Park Hotel in San Francisco. I'm a native San Franciscan, and you were you were born in Illinois. Uh, what what is your family background in Illinois? What what kind of uh, work did your dad and your mom do?
1: Well, my dad was a uh, manager, uh, mid level manager at various manufacturing companies uh, in the Chicago area. Uh, My mom was a homemaker. Uh, My sisters and I uh, had a very, I think, typical uh, childhood. We attended uh, public schools, Uh, were instilled by our parents with uh, really sound values of uh, caring and giving back to the community and uh, it was that which inspired me to go into public service. Uh, I had the good fortune to go to college and then to law school and public policy school. And uh, it was there that I uh, set my mind to wanting to use my legal training to help people. Uh, And I did that initially as a legal aid lawyer. in Well, I think you were
2: somewhat greatly influenced. I know you uh, were a student body president in, I guess it was uh, Carl Sandburg High School. Um, And that congratulations. You were born a a year, um, a year, be- uh, year before President Kennedy was assassinated, and for some reason, just talking with you, it seems like you've got the passion to give back to the community in, in the right way. Um, so, so it was early in high school that you decided that you wanted to do a public service career.
1: Well, I, I think um, one of the things that uh, was a feature of our family life was uh, parents who liked to talk about and encourage us as kids to think about current events and what was going on in the world around us. I remember my dad and mom uh, taking us uh, to the inner city of Chicago uh, to help homeless people, taking us to nursing homes to help uh, poor seniors. And so there was really an ethos within our family of of giving back and of helping others. And I took that in and internalized it. And uh, that's what led me on my path of public service. Uh, In high school, uh, I was involved like any kid is in a variety of different uh, extracurricular activities uh, and uh, had the good fortune to go to college and then law school uh, and public policy school and uh, been able to use that experience and that education to, to help people and to me that's what it's all about.
2: Well let's kind of go through the journey of your political career and I think it's kind of important for our viewers and they can see how you progress and how your dedication has been there. Um, When you moved to uh, Sacramento area, you ran for city council. Can you give us a little, uh, did you win the first time?
1: I did. Uh, But even before that, uh, when we first settled in Sacramento, uh, I began working as a legal aid lawyer with an outfit called Legal Services of Northern California. I worked in a small rural legal aid office providing free legal assistance to farm workers and other low-income families, and I represented them in a whole host of matters. And the core of that work was fighting poverty helping people that were living in desperate conditions uh, with their civil rights issues, their uh, health care, their housing, their affordable housing, and uh, trying to assist them uh, to succeed. And so that work was uh, tremendous work. I really enjoyed it. It really gave me an insight into the sorts of struggles that people face. And then in recognition of that work, I was awarded a White House Fellowship, and that's a competitive nonpartisan program. It takes about 15 people to Washington D.C. each year after you go through the competition and you work as a special assistant to a cabinet secretary and I had the good fortune to be selected by United States Attorney General Janet Reno uh, to be her special assistant and I I worked in an office directly adjacent to hers uh, in Washington D.C. met with her three or four times a day and saw firsthand how one runs uh, the Department of Justice and that experience uh, is something that is been tremendously helpful to me both in my current role as insurance commissioner but also in my future role as attorney general and then it was after that that i returned back to sacramento and ran for city council and i did win my first race i represented the southeast side of town a very diverse set of neighborhoods that had been largely overlooked by the powers that be there were neighborhoods without parks there were neighbors without sidewalks there were uh, business quarters without curbs and gutters and streetlights. And so a lot of my work was focused on making sure that people had the same amenities that the wealthier parts of town had, uh, and also worked a lot on uh, crime prevention and public safety issues as well. A lot of that involved organizing communities, uh, hearing and listening to them as to what their needs were, and using the skills that I had developed as a legal aid lawyer uh, to build coalitions to then uh, demand that City Hall provide the services that these areas had not been provided historically. Well, I think
2: this is a great opportunity for the viewers to hear that. And your next move was to state assembly. What what, what motivated you to run for state assembly? And, and it sounds like you accomplished a lot on the city council. And that uh, I think that what, you were in the uh, neighborhood District 6, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in Sacramento.
1: That's right. That was the southeast side of town, uh, a very large uh, African-American, Latino uh, Southeast Asian American population and uh, worked very, very hard uh, in uh, coordination and collaboration with those communities to make sure that their needs were addressed. I'm very proud of uh, work I did around affordable housing, around uh, making sure people were being paid a living wage, around making our streets safer, uh, built uh, coalitions uh, that were largely focused on crime prevention and making these neighborhoods safer. And so, having done that, uh, then an opportunity presented itself to run for state assembly. And my thought there was to take the experience I'd had as a legal aid lawyer, the experience I'd had working as a senior official in the federal department of justice with Jan Reno, and my experience as city council member and bring that to state government. And so I did have an opportunity then to be elected to the state assembly. I served there for six years. I chaired the judiciary committee and the health committee. I did a lot of work on the civil justice system and on laying the groundwork for healthcare reform, and uh, really enjoyed uh, that service as well.
2: Okay, you know that kind of leads into one of the one of the big uh, topics right now. We're gonna, and you were, you kind of talked about it, and that's housing. Um, currently, the state of California. Um, recently had a bill that was defeated, which was 827, Senator Wiener's bill, and I I had an opportunity to interview at least probably probably 14, 15 mayors, at least on the peninsula, and most of them were not necessarily uh, excited about the Wiener bill, um, primarily because it was going to take uh, their planning out of their hands and that the state was going to kind of dictate that. There's a new proposal out. I think that's 828, or am I wrong on that, um, Assembly Bill? How do you think we can address the housing crisis? I, I did talk to uh, uh e on it. I did talk to Gavin on it. and It seems like we're some millions of houses or units that we need in the state of California. Um, And when we make that distinction, the distinction shouldn't be necessarily low-cost housing, but the word affordable housing. So how do you think we can address that problem in a more equitable way in the state?
1: So we have a shortage of of housing at all uh, income levels, uh, but it's most acute with regard to uh, housing affordable to working people uh, and lower-income families. So that's where the greatest shortage is. But we need more at all levels and particularly more housing affordable to lower-income families and individuals. What that means is that we are going to have to, I think, be willing to have a little more flexibility uh, with regard to getting the housing permitted and built. Uh, certainly there are uh, important uh, interests uh, at the local level. You've got cities and counties and the neighborhoods and the communities that they represent to uh, want to make sure that this is done in the right way. but. To simply say, no, we're not going to allow any new housing has created the very situation in which we find ourselves. So I think there's a a balance to be struck. And I think that uh, we do need to move more in the direction of uh, providing more opportunities for more housing and making it more uh, efficient in terms of building and developing it. One of the ways the Attorney General can play a role there is that there's actually an existing state law that requires every city and county to take its fair share of housing uh, at all income levels and to zone enough land that's developable to accommodate that housing. And the thought behind that law is that as the state's housing needs grow, that that ought to be apportioned in a fair way across all jurisdictions, and everyone has to do their fair share. Unfortunately, there's very little enforcement of that law, and the Attorney General has the authority to enforce that law. Currently, it's not being enforced. And one thing I would do is the next attorney general is enforce that law and make sure that localities are zoning enough land to accommodate the housing. It doesn't allow the attorney general or anyone else to actually mandate the building of the housing, but one of the first necessary steps is to have land that's developable and zoned on which housing can be built. And there are many communities that haven't done that because they just don't want to see more housing. So the attorney general can play an important role in trying to make sure that this law is complied with and at a minimum we have more sites zoned for housing, so then folks can come in and make proposals to build that housing.
2: Well, I think that's a, a good start. One of the questions that's come up to me in many years of, of, of talking to different politicians and also running for public office myself, um, was is that there was a federal and state tax credit for building your quarter transportation areas. Uh, the unfortunate thing, it's been my experience, that even though we give the credit and we encourage and we build the housing, that there's really no rule or study that indicates that the people are actually taking public transportation so do you think there's anything that we can do on that level because and I don't want to get into the transportation issue right now but I want to stick focused on the housing how do you think we can address that better and then I was going to before I let you answer the question I read an article that Caltrans has discovered that they have some thirty acres um, on, on their where they're storing some of their older cars and they're thinking about partnering up and building some workforce housing or affordable housing. And what I want to distinguish here is the two two words, workforce housing and affordable housing. Workforce housing, and, and a lot of the cities are grappling with it now. That could be a teacher, a banker, an insurance agent, um, or just a hard worker in, in the community that needs it. Um, Affordable housing um, is affordable housing based on a medium income in a particular county. And then on the other end, we have what we have is subsidized housing, which is under Section 8 and government housing. So, um, for the audience, and I know you understand the distinction of that, but when we say the buzzwords, affordable housing, somehow the public all think it's low-cost housing. So i thrown out a lot at it. I want you to see if you can kind of dissect what I what I asked and see how we can come about with some solutions.
1: Well, uh, you make a good point that uh, in the public's mind, some uh, members of the public, when they hear affordable housing, they think public housing projects or other directly subsidized housing. But as you point out, it's broader than that. And the notion of affordability is that you should have you should not have to pay more than a third of your income regardless of what your income level is for housing and so obviously what's affordable to a really rich person is going to be different than what's affordable to someone that makes less money. Uh, Workforce housing also typically refers to housing that uh, is available for people that are uh, in uh, maybe service sector jobs or manufacturing jobs uh, that is affordable to them And sometimes those two terms are used synonymously, so it gets a little confusing. So I think there is a lot of value in uh, encouraging and allowing uh, uh, mixed-use, higher-density housing around transit centers. And the reason for that is that uh, you have a, a positive synergistic effect between the availability of public transportation and the availability of the housing, which gives people a better ability to move around the jurisdiction, to get to their jobs, to get to and from wherever they want to go uh, without having to use a car necessarily. So encouraging more housing uh, at higher densities around transit centers, I think is a positive thing. There's a lot of science that indicates that, in fact, when it's done right, it actually adds a lot of value uh, to uh, the housing. So, for example, in the Washington, D.C. area, the Metro line, it turns out that Housing located within a quarter-half mile of a metro stop is priced a lot higher than housing that's further out for comparable square footages and design of the housing. Why is that? Because there's a real value in being able to walk to the metro center and to get on the, the metro. And I think the same holds true in the Bay Area. So there have been uh, mechanisms that have been proposed and, and implemented from time to time to encourage a more higher density and mixed-use housing around uh, transit centers, including tax credits and other um, uh, regulatory incentives, I think those can be positive things uh, when when done in a thoughtful and, and balanced way. But sort of stepping back a second, I think you can do you can do things to create regulatory incentives. You can have uh, tax incentives, but you also need to step back and, and understand too that fundamentally. Um, We've got to make sure that we're enforcing the existing laws, as I said a moment ago, to get jurisdictions to zone enough land for developable housing. So there are a variety of things that need to be done, uh, and the Attorney General can play a role uh, in much of it.
2: Well, I've been in real estate for about 30-plus years in the housing crisis. I live in the Bay Area Peninsula, and and we have one of the highest zip codes, which is 94027. I had an opportunity to interview about 14 mayors, and, of course, some of the mayors in some towns like Atherton, Hillsboro... Um, or, or Palo Alto are not going to be able to build affordable housing because they don't even have apartment buildings or stuff like that. But they do seem to be spirited to want to build secondary units on, on their property. So I think that's a good a good start. I wanted to, to talk about a question that I've never really got answered by uh, any assemblyman or congressperson or stuff. state of California has some surplus land, which is owned by the county and the state. Uh, would it be worthwhile for the state to look in some of that surplus land? And some of that surplus land, to my knowledge, is in the corridor areas of transportation. Um, So would you be willing to uh, push on the legislature and the governor to kind of look at those corridors? Because I'm I'm pleased to see what you're talking about with the corridor transportation.
1: There's no question that uh, we ought to be looking at uh, all available uh, opportunities to provide more housing. And uh, to the extent that, the public sector owns land that's underutilized. It's not being used currently to to accomplish some uh, necessary public service. Certainly, we ought to look at developing that land. No question. You'd mentioned in your other question uh, that Caltrans may have some sites. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, what happens sometimes in governments is that uh, each government agency is its own little fief. Uh, And they're thinking only about the thing that they do, uh, that they're uh, chartered to do, say in the case of Caltrans, uh, transportation. uh, But they're not thinking about the opportunities associated with some underutilized land. So I do think there'd be a lot of value in the governor and the legislature looking at what could be done to get these state agencies to take a look at surplus land and make it available for housing.
2: Well, I remember when we had the recession in 2008, um, in San Mateo County, Uh, we gave the court system back to the state, and then I think that that we are leasing it from the state. So there was some innovation. There was some talk at that time of getting rid of surplus land. It just never happened. Um, Instead of getting into a controversial discussion on Prop 13, that's not what I want to do. But what I do want to talk about is an idea that I had come up with with a couple of uh, mayors and stuff. Would you be interested in seeing some opportunity for some of the big holders of land, meaning a lot of... people that own commercial and multi-units in the state of California, giving them some tax break in order for them to put out some more affordable housing?
1: Well, again, there are existing uh, federal tax breaks available. Uh, The Low Income Housing Tax Credit, uh, which has been a uh, major funder of affordable housing development, and that is available to owners of commercial land that want to do affordable housing. I think that the challenge has been uh, with... um, uh interest rates so low, the value of the tax credits are not uh, what they once were, uh, but it's still an important resource, and I think the availability of a federal tax credit as well as a state tax credit can be an important incentive, and certainly it is available to owners of commercial land uh, as a way to uh, encourage them. There's other incentives as well uh, that local governments could undertake. They could... Um, allow a little more flexibility to owners of commercial land. They could relax some of the regulatory requirements. Uh, They could potentially reduce some of the fee burden. All of that, I think, is is within the realm of possibility to try to encourage commercial owners to uh, develop uh, their land. I do want to talk a little bit, too, though, about uh, public safety issues, because certainly uh, public safety uh, has a direct impact on communities as well. And one of the things I'm Uh, really interested in doing as the next Attorney General uh, is focusing on public safety, particularly with regard to the people that are returning to the community from the prisons and the jails. Uh, We have had a a sad legacy in this state, in this country, uh, through the war on drugs, of incarcerating a lot of uh, non-serious, non-violent offenders, putting them in prisons for very long periods of time, in many cases uh, making them more hardened and uh, better criminals by virtue of putting them away for so long, not providing them with the kinds of programs they need uh, to reintegrate, and then when they return to the community, guess what? They re-offend, re-victimize, and the cycle continues. So one of my principal reasons for running for Attorney General is to focus on criminal justice reform, and in particular, working to make sure that we've got mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, education, job training, and jobs for people in the correction system and people that are coming out, because they're going to come out. And the question is... Not whether they're coming out, eventually, unless they're serving a life sentence or they're on death row, they're coming out. The question is, what are we going to do to make sure they don't re-offend when they come out? And so I want to focus on what the science and the evidence shows us works, which is programs that are designed to help people get back on their feet, reintegrate, and get their lives back together. As I travel across the state, I've met um, a lot of people uh, that have... Uh, been in the state prison system, uh, who are now productive uh, people in the community. And how did that happen? Well, what they tell me is they found a program uh, in prison or jail that got them the education that they lacked, that gave them a skill. I remember one gentleman in particular uh, who uh, was in prison for some time for a drug possessory offense. He found a program that trained him to be an electrician. And so when he came out of prison, uh, he uh, went over to the Union Hall, uh, signed up to be a an apprentice electrician, uh, got into the program there uh, based on the skills he had learned in prison. Now he's a full-fledged electrician. Well, He's I doing a, a great job.
2: Yeah, I heard a story of a gentleman that teaches at Georgetown University. He, did, he spent 30 years in federal prison for drugs, but he was so skilled at writing appeals to the Supreme Court for prisoners that eventually they found a way that he went, was able to go to law school and he teaches at Georgetown University. I don't know the gentleman's name. You might want to look him up. But he helped a lot of things. That brings the, uh, the uh, I think it's a baby step. I come from a probation officer's background. When I went to San Francisco State, I worked out here. Um, your, your your major problem that we have with the incarceration is there is no rehabilitation, um, even when we look in San Quentin, uh, the average amount of rehabilitation is maybe ten to fifteen percent of the prisoners. so I think the whole model that you talk about needs changing and i 'm um, really supportive of what your idea is and, and i 'm assuming you're also in support of bail reform. bail reform uh, doesn 't do any good for, especially for the people that are that have families and lower and middle income.
1: That's right. So, so absolutely, uh, we need to dramatically expand re- rehabilitation reentry programs for people in the correction setting and people coming out. Uh, I also oppose money bail. Uh, that's the system where uh, if you're arrested for a crime uh, before your trial, the court decides whether you're uh, a risk of flight or a danger to yourself or a danger to other members of the community and then will set a bail bond dollar figure uh, that you have to meet uh, in order to uh, remain free. And so unfortunately, uh, currently, the courts are not required to look at your ability to pay in setting that bail amount. So what happens is if you're arrested and you're really wealthy, you post bail and you go free. Uh, If you're a working person or have very limited means and you're arrested, you're not going to be able to post the bail because you can't afford to buy the bail bond and pay the premium for it and you're going to sit in jail and so that is unconstitutional I think. I mean basically you're discriminating against people based on income and so I support reforming that system and instead of using your ability to pay to determine whether you're going to be jailed or not use a system that looks at what kind of risk you pose to yourself and other people and decide based on that risk assessment whether you should be in jail before your trial or not. And uh, San Francisco has begun doing that. Santa Clara has begun doing that. And I think that's something we ought to be doing statewide.
2: Is there any models out there that you're aware of in a better uh, system than the current prison system we have? Is there any better model, any other state out there or anything that you're aware of that you might think that we should bring forward in the state of California?
1: Well, I think one thing we've done in California is we've recognized that the war on drugs was a failure. Uh, And so we have enacted laws, either the voters have enacted laws or the legislature has enacted laws to try to undo uh, some of the harms of the war on drugs. One is uh, we've decriminalized and and made legal the adult recreational use of marijuana. I think that's a very positive step in the right direction. Uh, We've also passed laws called uh, uh, amending three strikes so that instead of a a situation where for a very minor offense you're put in prison forever, uh, we've amended three strikes to reduce the ability Uh, to count as a third strike some minor offense. Uh, There's also been prison realignment, which has basically taken uh, non-serious, non-violent offenders out of the prisons and realigned them to the jails closer to the community. There's Prop 47, which reclassified certain felonies that were non-serious, non-violent felonies as misdemeanors. Uh, And so instead of uh, treating these drug possessory offenses as a felony and stamping people with a felony brand and putting them in prison for a long time, and then when they get out, They can't get a job because they've got a felony on their record. They can't find housing. They don't get the vote, all those things. Prop 47 was enacted by the voters to allow those people that were guilty of non-serious, non-violent crimes to have their felony reclassified as a misdemeanor. So then they'd have a better likelihood of success when they get out. And then Prop 57 undid all of the what were called determinant sentencing laws that were enacted in the 70s that were increasingly ratcheted up that took away from judges and took away from parole boards the ability to recognize that after people have been incarcerated, uh, if you uh, can uh, provide them with programs, some of them are able to change their behavior uh, and you want to recognize that and uh, give them some incentive for doing that. Well, with these determinate sentences, Uh, You could uh, be in prison for a non-serious, non-violent crime, take advantage of a substance abuse program, a mental health program, a job training program, if you could find one, uh, turn your life around, but you got no incentive to do those things uh, reflected in your sentence. So Prop 57 was enacted by the voters to give judges and parole boards the ability to look at those prisoners that have turned their lives around and say, okay, hey, we're going to recognize that uh, and uh, recognize that with regard to their sentence. So those are all important things that California has done. Uh, I think we ought to get out of private prisons. Uh, I don't think we ought to be using private prisons in California. Uh, I think the incentives there are all wrong. There are some uh, important areas of reform around what's called restorative justice. This is a whole sort of body of work that involves, uh, as an alternative to incarceration, um, close monitoring of people that are guilty of non-serious, non-violent crimes, uh, requiring them to provide some restitution to their victims, uh, requiring them to do community service, community work, and looking at some of these alternatives. So I think these are all out there. I, I want to focus on this as Attorney General because I think it's hugely important. Uh, as a result of these laws that, that have been passed that I just described a moment ago, uh, more people are coming back to the community. And if we don't support them and help them be successful, they re, will reoffend. To me, it's it's fundamentally a public safety issue. It's all about trying to reduce recidivism and reoffending and re-victimization. It's not about coddling people that are coming out of prison or jail. It's about helping them be successful so they don't do bad things to us again and so that the cycle doesn't continue. So I think it's in all of our interest to do these things. Well, this
2: dovetails into another major issue across the country, what we've seen with gun violence and, um, and mass killings in schools and with uh, assault rifles and uh, automatic weapons it It appears that we have a mental illness problem in this country that we're not addressing. Um, how do you think in the state of california I'm a teacher part time once in a while and and I don't think we're uh bringing mental health into the schools um is 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 there some kind of uh pioneering thing that you think we should do bring mental health uh, back into schools for maybe some of those kids that might be on the fringe
1: well let me let me start first with the whole issue of gun violence and let me say that the science is very clear that those states that have adopted sensible gun control laws have a lower incidence of gun violence per capita than those states that refuse to adopt sensible gun control laws. So you can plot it on a graph, and those states that have more sensible gun control laws have less per capita gun violence. Those states that have less sensible gun control laws have more per capita violence. There was just recently a study released by California's new Research Center on Gun Violence that took a look at uh, what's happened between 2000 and 2015, and the incidence of gun violence has gone down in California. Uh, So that's a very positive thing. So I support uh, common sense gun control measures in California. One challenge we have, though, is that we're not an island to ourselves, and there are states around us that don't have common sense gun control laws, and people can easily go there and get guns. Uh, There's also the issue of what are called private sales of guns or gun shows. For the, for, much,
2: for the audience, why don't you kind of explain what common sense gun gun rules are, so that they have a little bit better understanding? Well,
1: I, I think it's it's things that we've done here in California, which require a full background check, which require a waiting period before you can get a gun, uh, which require uh, uh, a period of, of uh, a limitation on the amount of ammunition you can buy, that limit the types of weapons that you can buy. All of these things, I think, are very are very important, but. We also need to enforce these laws, too, and this is where our current attorney general is falling down on the job. There is actually a body of law that prohibits certain people from having guns. If you're the victim of a serious uh, felony or misdemeanor, a court can decide you should no longer have a gun. If you're subject to a domestic violence restraining order, uh, the court can decide you should no longer have a gun. If you've been adjudicated so mentally ill that you're a danger to yourself and others, a court can decide you should not have a gun. And the names of all these people are collected in a database that the attorney general administers, and the attorney general has a duty to get these people to surrender their guns. There are about 10,000 people that fall into those three categories that are described by law, should not have guns, and they are in the database, and the current attorney general has not gotten them to surrender their guns. That's a big problem. I would have made that job one. Uh, had I been appointed attorney general, and I will certainly make it job one when I'm elected attorney general, is to get these people to surrender their guns. Now, if the issue is we don't have enough investigators at the Department of Justice to do it, well, let's reallocate some of the tasks and get more investigators. If there's not enough resources, let's go to the legislature and get more resources. If it's a problem uh, that uh, we don't have enough partnership from our local law enforcement partners. Well, let's draw a map of the state of California, do a heat map, identify where the largest concentration are of these people that shouldn't have guns. Uh, call. I'm happy to call personally the chief or the sheriff in that community and say, hey, look, let's work together let's get these guns surrendered. We're literally, you know, one person in those 10,000 who has a mental illness could go and shoot up a school tomorrow. That's, that's how dangerous this is. So, so there's a body of law that we have here in California uh, that are good laws, but we also need an attorney general who's going to enforce those laws and make sure that our streets and our communities are safer, and that's not happening right well, now.
2: Well, I appreciate your answer, but I kind of want to go back to the question. Uh, should we be able to put in the curriculum some kind of mental mental health programs in our school system? I, and I, I predominantly, uh, most of the uh, mass killers were 90 versus 95 percent male, and most of them were all suffering with some kind of mental illness, uh,
1: I think the the mental illness issue is is, uh, bigger than the schools. I think that's a component of it. And certainly, uh, as a result of Prop 13 and the uh, defunding of our schools in dramatic ways, the availability of services to kids in our schools uh, has declined uh, in some communities where the tax base is lower and there's not enough money to support the schools. So doing what we can to try to make sure that uh, young people have access to mental health treatment is critically important, whether it's through the schools or through their uh, health insurance. And that's one of the reasons why I supported the Affordable Care Act, because we've expanded health insurance coverage to 5 million more Californians, and that includes kids. And a big component of that expansion of coverage is mental health treatment. You are entitled to get mental health treatment under the Affordable Care Act. So, yes, um, trying to do more in the schools is important, but doing more more broadly around mental health is important, too. And that includes um, not only making sure that more people have access to health insurance that covers mental health treatment, uh, make sure that we enforce what's called the Mental Health Parity Act, which requires that uh, health insurers uh, cover mental health uh, in an equal way as they're covering physical health. I've had direct experience with this as insurance commissioner. When I first uh, was sworn in as insurance commissioner, I discovered that the health insurers were not providing coverage for behavioral therapy for autistic kids. That's a form of of mental health treatment that has been demonstrated to really help kids with autism. And so, uh, long story short, I brought actions against health insurers and said, look, you've got to provide coverage for this behavioral therapy. We got them to do it. I was enforcing the Mental Health Parity Act. The Attorney General has a role in enforcing that act as well, making sure that mental health treatment is treated uh, equivalently to physical health as well. Then there's the issue of uh, the homeless mentally ill and uh, mental Ill, mentally ill a piece of people's interaction with law enforcement. And here, you know, we've got a big challenge in our hands. We've basically asked our police to be mental health providers. That's not what their training is. So what I'd like to see is more communities uh, do what some communities have done, uh, which is begin to actually deploy uh, mental health uh, treatment people uh, into the streets uh, so when the police encounter someone that's mentally ill, Uh, They call on this additional resource to interact with the person uh, as opposed to the police having to be the front line and the only responder when they're dealing with someone that's mentally ill. We just saw a uh, a terrible shooting in Sacramento uh, that's made national news uh, that uh, uh, involved uh, police uh, shooting uh, an individual uh, that allegedly was breaking into uh, homes and cars. Uh, that individual's brother, uh, in the wake of the shooting of of, of his brother, uh, has uh, been manifesting a number of uh, different uh, uh, issues with regard to his mental health. Uh, recently, uh, he was jailed. Uh, so we do this time and time again where the, the response to mental illness is jail. Now, that's not to say that when mentally ill people are Uh, threatening or about to cause harm uh, that they shouldn't be jailed in some circumstances, but jail shouldn't be our only recourse with regard to mental illness. And
2: and I'm going to ask you a a question. Am I assuming you you, you really would prefer teachers not to have guns?
1: Oh yes. I think that's a bad idea. And all the teachers I talk to say it's a bad idea. Uh, And so, you know, I think that there are a lot of other things we can do to make our schools safer than to arm our teachers. I think that'll make our schools less safe as opposed to more.
2: And you know, I want to go back to a buzzword that you use, and it's, and it's happening across the United States, and uh, the impact, the environmental impact reports that we use to build housing. Uh, one of the budgetary things when they do that, they, they base it on the per number of people that live in a unit, your population, and how much impact it's going to have on the police and fire I'm only coming from San Mateo County, but I'm assuming throughout the state the fire is building, 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 building. But I don't think that they're updating their environmental impact reports because I think with building more density housing, which is good, and building more housing, we're really impacting our police and fire. Uh, And most of the studies when people are building, they are not growing their police and fire, they're consolidating. San Mateo County, uh, we've merged three fire departments, the Belmont, Foster City, and San Mateo San Mateo Fire Departments, we merged our Sheriff's Department, which all seem to be uh, a more bargaining thing, but I'm concerned about those environmental impact reports that cities are using across the state that are impacting not only our streets, but the safety for the people, for the police and fire, because the infrastructure that we have is some 40 or 50 years old.
1: So, there is no law in California currently, unfortunately, that requires a city or county to certify before it approves a new subdivision that it has adequate local fire protection and where this is a, a, a very acute problem is in the counties uh, in the Sierra Nevadas and the foothills called the wildland urban interface where increasingly homes are being approved by counties and towns in areas where there's a high risk of fire and there's no requirement that the local government in approving those new homes and those new housing subdivisions uh, have enough local fire protection to protect the homes. So then what happens? Well, the the responsibility for protection then falls on the back of CAL FIRE, uh, which is the California Department of Forestry uh, Fire uh, Department. And so what you've seen happen is the budget Uh, for CAL FIRE. When I was in the state assembly, it was somewhere around three, four hundred million. It's now north of a billion dollars. Why? In part because CAL FIRE is having to fight to defend homes. They're fighting structure fires in areas that were traditionally just forests or other wildlands. And why are they having to fight the fire? Well, the local governments are not stepping up to make sure they have local adequate fire protection. So this is a big problem. You could you could fix it in part by passing a law that requires local governments to certify that that they have enough local fire protection to cover whatever new housing's being built. Um, I wrote a law like that and got it all the way through the legislature uh, and then only to see it vetoed by Governor Schwarzenegger at the behest of the building industry but but that the, you've put your finger on a on a real problem and and where it's most acute is in the uh, high risk fire areas where more homes are being built without adequate local fire protection. Uh,
2: Recently, we had the fires in Sonoma and Napa and Santa Rosa, uh, and one of the things that that came out of it is that FEMA didn't cover fires. Did we overcome that, or is that true? Is that a true statement?
1: Well, I think what people misunderstand with regard to FEMA, and it's not just fires, it's it's, uh, any natural disaster. People think that FEMA is going to rebuild their home after the natural disaster, whether it's an earthquake or a fire uh, or a flood, and that's not FEMA's role. FEMA's role is to provide emergency services to people uh, who are in dire and desperate need, uh, sometimes provide temporary housing, but they will not rebuild your home. And so it's important that people who own homes uh, purchase home insurance, and particularly uh, if you're in an area where there's a high risk of fire, uh, you better make sure you have home insurance. But also, if you're in an area where there's a high risk of earthquake, you ought to get earthquake insurance. Now, I know that's controversial, uh, it's expensive, uh, people don't like the expense, but we are locked and loaded, all the seismologists tell us, for one or two major catastrophic earthquakes, either in the Bay Area or Los Angeles or both, and FEMA is not going to rebuild people's homes when the earthquake comes, just as FEMA is not going to rebuild your home when the fire comes. Now, the good news is that most people do have homeowner's insurance. Uh, The challenge here, though, and what I've been spending a lot of time on as insurance commissioners, is getting the insurers to follow through on the promises they've made to people when they sold them that insurance. So in the North Bay, we had uh, something on the order of about 35,000 homes partially or completely destroyed. Within that 35,000, there's about 6,500 that were completely destroyed. A lot of my work over the last year has been getting insurers to help people uh, with regard to uh, their recovery. And we've done a lot of important work there. We've helped a lot of a lot of people. Going forward, uh, we are concerned about uh, increasing unavailability of insurance because the insurers ultimately under state law have the right to decide, and this is the legislature's doing, not mine, whether they're going to write insurance or not. So far it's not a crisis. They're still writing insurance in most areas, but it's something that we're looking at closely. We've made some proposals to the legislature as to things they could do to get ahead of this problem before it grows.
2: Well, I live in a town called Foster City, one of the first planned cities, and we're, we're pushing for a Proposition P to uh, upgrade our levy because FEMA is going to say that we're going to be in the flood area, so I understand the dire needs. This goes into a big issue that's just as uh, earth-shattering as housing, and that's transportation. Um, Japan has a pretty good monorail system that they use that gets people throughout the, throughout the country. Um, I had a golden opportunity to interview a former mayor and a former city council named Dave Tanner. I'm going to have his episode up on my podcast, By the Bay. But he has a, a suggestion and he has a suggestion of connecting a 380 monorail um, near the Tanfran shopping center which would basically take the monorail from those positions into Stockton, Tracy um, and Fresno in a, in a matter of 18-20 minutes. As you know, the Bay Area housing is to get a small house. You're starting at a million dollars. As a real estate broker for over 30 years, a million dollars doesn't get you much. How are we going to get the people off the roads? Um, It it appears, and I'm going to dissect it only with San Mateo County, and you know the state better than I do. San Mateo County, we all have BART. We all have Caltrans. We all have the train. We have buses. But what we found out when we dissect it, they work all independently of each other. They're all fighting for that same federal and state tax dollar and ridership. I know a few years back, Sam Trams had a problem with um, overbooking, saying there was so many rides in order to get some funding. Do you think collectively we need to see a better regional transit district where we collectively work together in a partnership?
1: Well, I, I do think there's a lot of value in... Uh, regional approaches to problem-solving, and trying to make sure that uh, independently run transportation systems connect with one another. And so the more that we can do that to collaborate, to cooperate, uh, to coordinate uh, between localities, I think the better off we are. And I think the Bay Area does a lot of that already. There's always room for improvement. Uh, But um, I do think more investments in public transportation is a smart thing. I know that there are various uh, ballot measures that are on the ballot in various communities to try to provide support for that. And I think that's a positive thing. I think that uh, there's no question that um, as we grow, as our population grows, uh, as uh, we find uh, disconnects between where people live and where people work, and as this affordability issue continues to... To grow, we're going to need more public transportation, no question.
2: Well, we're we're fortunate in the Bay Area to have your Apple, your Google, and your Facebook, and we're trying to develop and we're in the process of developing partnerships. Uh, do you see that the state is going to be in that position to try to reach out to some of these countries, some of these companies that are really making the great impact, the uh, great increase in our economy is technology, uh, bioscience. Uh, in technology so uh, as a state looking at partnerships um, we we in the peninsula uh, have Facebook who put a million dollars into explore reopening the old Dumbarton Bridge um, I was also told that one of the other technology companies gave us fifty million dollars to improve our one hundred one ninety two um, exchange too so what, do you see those partnerships happening with the state or, or do you think it's just pretty much gonna be with the counties only only
1: well, I think, that, I think the state of California is, is interested in um, encouraging participation by, by large corporations in, in some of these infrastructure projects. In some cases, uh, there is uh, uh, requirements. I mean, for example, if someone wants to build a, uh, a large facility on a freeway and wants a new freeway interchange, oftentimes they're going to be required to pay a substantial portion of the cost of that freeway interchange. Not all of it, but they'll make some contribution to it. So those those mechanisms exist. But the, but the state also has a regulatory role. And so we have to be careful uh, about uh, going too far in the direction of losing sight of that role. I mean, there's a, a little bit of attention, and, and importantly so. I mean, for example, um, all the reports with regard to Facebook and its failure to maintain the privacy of its uh, users. Uh, you know If I were Attorney General, um, I wouldn't have just sent a letter to Facebook like the current Attorney General is. I would have opened an investigation of Facebook, uh, just as New York uh, and Massachusetts Attorney Generals have. So you know, partnerships are good, but those partnerships should not uh, impede us with regard to our uh, legitimate oversight and enforcement responsibilities. And that's a big issue in this, in this Attorney General's race. If you look at who's supporting my uh, Democratic opponent, Mr. Becerra, uh, he's taken money from the insurance industry. Um, this is the same insurance industry that has fought health care reform. I'm not gonna take contributions from them, but he is. He's taking money from Big Oil. I think we ought to be investigating ExxonMobil for climate denial, for misleading its shareholders about climate change. He refuses to open that investigation, and he's taking money from Big Oil. I won't take a dime from Big Oil. He's taking money from Big Tobacco, uh, the uh, institution that has contributed to so much in the way of uh, poor health. In fact, the Attorney General's office has a unit that's responsible for overseeing all of the uh, settlement agreements and consent decrees with Big Tobacco, which were... uh, achieved uh, decades ago to hold them accountable for all the ill effects of big tobacco, it's a conflict of interest for him to be taking money for them, and he is. So this is an example where, you know, I think the Attorney General uh, ought to be very mindful that there are certain special interests over which the Attorney General's office has oversight or responsibility. and ought not to be taking money from them. And this goes to your question about partnerships. Partnerships are fine, but the role of Attorney General is to be independent, to be a law enforcement agency, and you ought not to be taking money from certain corporate interests that you have oversight of.
2: Why don't we, this dovetails into the uh, SP 562. Are you in favor of a single-payer insurance?
1: I am. I'm in favor of it. Uh, it's also called Medicare for All. Uh, it's what in various forms uh, just about every other industrialized country has done, and I think it's where we need to go. We have a version of it in the United States. It's called Medicare. Uh, And it didn't always exist. Uh, It was hugely controversial. Now it's hard to imagine how we could function without Medicare for seniors. But back in the day when it was first established in the 60s, it was hard fought. Uh, And it does what it's intended to do, which is to provide a baseline of medical coverage for seniors. Now they can buy more if they want to. You can buy policies on top of that. But that's the idea behind single payer is that you have one entity that's paying for the medical care that you need uh, and that you're not being held hostage by an insurance company to their determination of whether you need that medical care or not. Uh, there's no middle person. There's no profit-taking. Uh, it's a lot more efficient uh, and a lot better for delivery of care.
2: Well, in behalf of Podcast by the Bay, before we have closing remarks, is there... Uh Anything that you want to say to the listeners out there on why you should be Attorney General, the next Attorney General for the state of California?
1: I'm running for Attorney General based on my over 30 years of hard work as a lawyer, uh, making a difference for people in various ways. And that's a big distinction in this race. Uh, My Democratic opponent served in Congress for 24 years but wasn't actively practicing law, whereas I've been actively practicing law. There are some big policy differences between us. I'm, advocately, I'm actively promoting criminal justice reform. Um, I uh, actually oppose the death penalty. He supports it. Um, I uh, am not uh, willing to take contributions from the insurance industry, big oil, uh, big tobacco, uh, the private bail industry that we talked about earlier. He's taken contributions from all of those places. I also refuse to politicize the office. Uh, if you uh, notice... Uh, There are um, political operatives that he's brought into the office, including someone that he brought in to be his uh, director of operations, who's now running for governor, of all things. I don't think that's what the Attorney General's office should be used for. It shouldn't be used as an incubator for people to be brought in then to run for governor. So there's some big differences between us, and um, I'm excited about the prospects. There's no question that a big part of the job is resisting President Trump and the Trump administration. But there's more to the job than that, and there's a lot that's not being done. I talked about how uh, the current Attorney General is not getting guns away from people that by law shouldn't have them. He failed for a year and a half to implement the uh, database that's necessary for doctors to check to see before they're over prescribing opioids. Uh, that's been a real problem. Uh, he's not been investigating ExxonMobil uh, for their climate denial. There's a long list of things beyond resisting the Trump administration that aren't getting done that should get done. And I'm going to focus on those things.
2: On behalf of Podcast by the Bay, we want to thank you, Dave, and we want to wish you a lot of luck. And we appreciate you being a dedicated public service. Thank Thank you, you, Patrick. Thanks for
1: the interview. I really appreciate it.
0: My One and Only Love, performed by Leo DeVito. And you can find out more about Leo and other artists at the Highway Soul music page at highwaysoul.com. All right. Well, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay. That's our Twitter handle, at Podcast by the Bay. All right. Well, we'll catch you on the next time. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.